So at this point, you know that apologetics is not going around saying, I'm so sorry, I'm a Christian, please forgive me, right? No, we make other people sorry, we're Christians. No, we don't do that either, all right? No, you guys know apologetics is about defending the Christian faith, and, uh, and, um, and that's what we're all called to do, okay? This is not like just my job, although it is my job. Um, it's all of our jobs we're commanded to do that. And, uh, and a few years ago, uh, man, how many years ago now? It's been a while, um, where I left full-time teaching high school science and math. Everyone say, ooh. <laughs> do we have any people in here like science and math? Just a couple of you. Okay, here's the thing. You want to come back tonight, all right? Because we're going to talk about the heavens declare the glory of God. And it is, the, it is the thing I like to talk about the most, okay, of all the things I talk about. I mean, I love science, but when I can combine my love for God and my love for science together, it is like, it's a beautiful thing, okay? I'm just telling you, you will not be disappoint, disappointed if you come back tonight. We're going to look at something I actually don't like to talk about this morning, okay, but we need to talk about it because it's the number one reason why people are leaving the church, Okay. But tonight, we're going to look at I, the, most, the, the thing I like to talk about the most, okay? So come back. Hopefully, that's a little bit of a teaser there for you, all right? So I left uh, being a high school science and math teacher, became a full-time Christian apologist. And I've been working with a ministry called Stand to Reason for uh, something like eight years now. Now, a couple years ago, you guys probably heard about this thing called COVID <laughs> and the pandemic, Right? And, uh, and so I couldn't travel for my job anymore. You know, I, I'm from Canada, so you're going to hear out about, you're going to hear the accent, okay? It's going to come out uh, here and there. And, uh, and I, they shut the border, couldn't travel. In fact, they didn't want us leaving our houses, okay? You know, I don't know how it was like here, but we were like locked up. And I'm thinking, how do I do ministry? And one of the things we started during COVID was uh, something called Red Pen Logic. Uh, how many people have heard of Red Pen Logic? Okay, a few of you. The rest of you, we're going to get you Bibles. We're going to pray for you, okay? No, uh, you, okay, you need to check out Red Pen Logic, okay? Um, and uh, we're, what we're doing on there is just answering a lot of the challenges that pop up on social media. And um, mostly through videos. We also do graphics, though. And uh, we've just seen these platforms kind of just, just explode online. And the reason for that is because people are looking for answers to some of these challenges, okay? And uh, like, I'm on TikTok. I don't want to be on TikTok, okay? I, my philosophy to TikTok is post and ghost, okay? Like, I just post and I'm out of there. I don't know. I Like, most of the stuff on there has no interest to me. But we saw that there's young people on that. It's the number one platform for young people. So, okay, I'll post my videos there. And like, within a few months, we had like 100,000 followers, and now like 200,000 people, mostly young people, are following. So that's cool, okay? That's cool. Um, so check that out, especially if you have a young person. It might be like the gateway for them into apologetics. I get messages all the time. Someone says, hey, I, I found you on Instagram. I found you on TikTok. I didn't know what apologetics was. And now I'm like reading all these guys, you know, all these apologists. It's really, really exciting stuff. This morning... We are going to spend the next 40 minutes looking at a question that has produced more atheists, more agnostics, those who don't know if God exists, more skeptics than any other challenge, okay? I mean, we have all experienced the, what we might call the problem of evil at some point and asked the question, if there is a good God, if there is a loving God, if there is an all-knowing and all-powerful God out there, why is there so much evil and suffering in this world? I mean, turn on the news and you will hear story after story after story of terrible tragedy. Some so unspeakable, they're hard to even um, imagine. I'm just going to put up kind of three things that, stood, that stand out in my mind. I don't have a great memory, okay? I don't have a great memory. 
But there are some things that I like remember where I was when I heard about these things. Like, I, I, I bet most of the people in this room know where they were on September 11th, right? You guys know 9-11. You know where you were. I was in high school. All my friends, we found, we all went back to my house. I lived pretty close to our high school, and we were all gathered around the TV watching the news as this was all unfolding. The question is, if God is all good and all powerful and all knowing and all love, why 9-11? Or maybe um, you remember when, in, in, this was uh, a little while ago, in, in 2012, December 14th, 20-year-old Adam Lanza marked, marched into Sandy Hook Elementary School with a rifle and killed 20 elementary school kids. We're talking kindergartners. I mean, just, just thinking about it, it's like, God, where are you? Why, nine, why Sandy Hook? Or any of the other shootings that have taken place over the last decade? Or maybe you remember Boxing Day, Tooth Boxing Day. Do you guys know what Boxing Day is? Okay, that's a Canadian thing. The day after Christmas. On Boxing Day 2004, a tsunami over 100 feet high hit the coast of Indonesia and it killed 200,000 people like that. You could, in the aftermath, you could see bodies floating like driftwood. If God exists and he's out there, why kill our tsunamis? And so you can begin to see, and I'm sure you have experienced, you have personal stories. I could share the personal stories of people we have lost to cancer and to accidents and to all these things. It really hits home. A few years ago, um, there was an interview between a, a British broadcaster named Gay Byrne, and he was interviewing kind of a famous comedian actor, Stephen Fry, okay? And uh, Stephen Fry is an atheist. And in this little episode, um, Byrne asked Stephen Fry, what would you say to God if you encounter him after you die? This video went viral. Like we're talking millions of people saw this video. This is, this is before Red Pen Logic days, but I still get people sending me this video to this day. It keeps making the rounds. I want you to watch as this atheist gives his, his perspective. This is hard to watch, okay? But I just want you to take two minutes, watch this video, and what we're gonna do is we're gonna respond to Stephen Fry. We're going to go through kind of red pen logic style and kind of walk through a response to this. So check this out. Suppose what Oscar believed in as he died, in spite mm. of your protestations, suppose it's all true, mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? I will basically, what's known as the Odyssey, I think I... I'll say, bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. And you think you're going to get in no, on that? No, but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. Now, if I died and it was, it was Pluto, Hades, and if it was the 12 Greek gods, then I would have more truck with it because the Greeks were, they didn't pretend not to be human in their appetites and in their capriciousness and in their unreasonableness. They didn't present themselves as being all-seeing, all-wise, all-kind, all-beneficent because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac. Utter maniac, totally selfish, totally... We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him? What kind of God would do that? Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it insects whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and make them blind. They eat outwards from the eyes. Why? Why did you do that to us? You could easily have made a, a creation in which that didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. 
So, you know, atheism is not just about not believing there is a, is not believing there's a God, but on the assumption that there is one, what kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent that he is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living, in my opinion. That sure is the longest answer to that question that I ever got in this entire series. All right, now that was, I mean, I don't normally show video clips that are that long, but I wanted you guys to kind of feel the weight of the challenge coming from sitting across from the atheist. You can see that the expression on the broadcaster's face, right? He's like, oh man, this is intense. What would you say? if someone made those kinds of claims. We're gonna walk through this together. Now, to even to begin to scratch the surface on this question, we need to make a really important clarification right out of the gate, okay? The problem of evil can be divided into really two broad categories, okay? You have the intellectual problem, the intellectual challenge, and then you have kind of on the other end of the spectrum, you have this emotional challenge or the, the emotional problem. And we have all experienced the emotional challenge in one form or another. If you've experienced evil, you have been emotionally impacted by it, okay? Now, many of us maybe haven't wrestled with the intellectual question. Um, here's, here's, I want you to just, here's what, uh, what Stephen Fry said. Remember, the question was, suppose it's all true, like God's out there, it's all true, and you're going to meet him. What are you going to say? And he starts with these three words. How dare you? How dare you? Does that sound like it's coming from a place of the intellect or a place from the emotion, right? And so right away, we see this emotional reaction. How dare you create a world which is, there is such misery that is not our fault. Notice that first question has a premise, right? It's not our fault. We'll come back to that in a second, right? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Notice Stephen Fry is now calling something evil. Remember that, because we're going to come back to that. He says, why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? We're going to come back. So there's some hidden assumptions in there and premises in there that we need to, we're going to like dissect a little bit this morning, all right? And so notice, you have the intellectual problem, the intellectual problem needs a special kind of response. It needs kind of a philosophical response, refutation. And that's, we're gonna spend some time doing some of that this morning. The, the emotional problem though, doesn't need the intellect. What it needs is kind of, uh, well, it's an emotional rejection, right? And so it needs a certain kind of response if, if someone's coming from that place. It's kind of like this, if a doctor, um, is talking with a patient who's just been diagnosed with cancer, they're going to speak very different than they would to, say, a medical student who's asking about cancer, right? Those are two different conversations that are going to take place. Um, if, if the doctor starts just giving cold, hard facts over to this patient, well, that's going to come across as cold and maybe heartless, when, when if he, the medical student starts asking about cancer and he just gives her a hug, well, that's going to come across as weird, right? Not, not appropriate to the, to the question. And so we want to make sure we're coming at it from the right angle. Now, here's, here's what makes it real tricky. Oftentimes, we experience suffering and evil and our emotions well up and then we start asking the question. And so it's like these two things are all like they're intertwined with each other, all right? Now, what I want to do is I want to, I'm not going to answer the problem of evil for you, okay, in the next like 30 minutes. That's not happening. But I want to give you some tools. I want to give you some things to think about in how to kind of wrestle with this question. That's what we're doing. We're wrestling with this question. And by the way, if you think you're just going to get an answer this morning, you're going to leave unsatisfied, okay, because that's not happening. But also, I want to make sure you understand that even though we go through this, it doesn't erase the hurt. It doesn't erase the suffering, okay? Um, and that's still there. We're just giving us some tools to think through this issue and show that 
there can be a loving and good and powerful and all-knowing God, and there still be suffering in this world. Now, here's how the problem typically goes. If God is all good, he would want to eliminate all the evil in the world. If God is all powerful, then he could eliminate all the evil in the world. There is evil in the world, and logically, this is what follows. Either God is not all good, or he's not all powerful, or both, right? Either way, the God of Christianity does not exist, because the God of Christianity is all good and all powerful. So that's the kind of logical problem. So how do we respond? Well, I have four points. My four points are evil is something. Evil is not something. And that sounds like a contradiction, but I'll explain what I mean in a second. Something good made evil possible. And then we're going to end with evil is solved by someone. Okay, so you guys ready for this? Yeah. One person's ready for this. <laughs> All right. All right, like you might have to like nudge the person next to you, okay? Because this is like, we gotta, we're going to do some, we're gonna do some hard thinking this morning. The first thing is evil is something. Now this um, shouldn't even need to be said, okay? What I mean by it's something, I mean it's real. It's in the world, okay? It's not just in my head. I didn't just imagine evil. Like it is something out there. But the problem is not everyone agrees with that. There are whole religions that deny that evil is a real thing, okay? Um, For example, in the pantheistic religions, like all is one and one is all, you know, this kind of thing, you end up having no distinction between good and evil. There is no evil on that worldview. And if your worldview cannot make sense of evil, you need to get a new worldview, okay? Because... As sure as I'm talking with you right now, evil exists. Like evil, we've all experienced. So so you have to have a worldview that can make sense of that. Now, I actually think atheism has a bit of a problem here because I don't think atheism has the tools to make sense of the evil in the world either. And and we're we're gonna talk more about that in a second. But if you think... All I'm saying is if you think things like racism and genocide and bullying and murder and abuse and terrorism, if you think those things are really evil, then you're with me, okay? Evil is something. We're in agreement here, okay? Now, uh, most people recognize that for there to be a universal moral law out there, there must be a universal moral law giver, okay? Like the connection between morality, a moral law, and God, a moral law giver, most people can see that connection. And most people also see the connection between getting rid of the moral law giver. If you get rid of the moral law giver, what are you left with? Well, you no longer have a moral law. And that amounts to something that's called relativism. Like you decide what's right and wrong. You decide what's good and evil. So sometimes that's like an individualist relativism. What's true for me, true for you. You know, it might not be the same thing. What's good for you might not be good for me, that kind of thing. You also have this thing called cultural relativism. Okay, it's not the individual, but as a group, we get together and decide what's right and wrong. There's a big problem with that, though, because another group might say, well, we have different rights or different, you know, goods and and wrongs and bads that kind of thing. So who gets to decide? Well, you can't, right? Your culture decides. Or maybe, as Richard Dawkins and many others have argued, this whole thing about morality, it's really just an illusion. It's like something we evolved, just like we evolved like five fingers instead of six. We evolved to think that murder was wrong. It's not really wrong, but like it's, it's, it's one of those, it's just evolved, okay? And it could have evolved differently. So those are kind of like your options, and those are not good options. But here's like Richard Dawkins, okay? He says, he says straight up, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. 
Other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it nor any justice, okay? On his worldview, at the bottom, there's no justice. He goes on to say, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is, at bottom, no design, come back tonight, I'm gonna to show you all kinds of design, okay? I'm gonna show you that this is totally wrong. No design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. He's actually, I think he's right about that. If, if the world is just electrons, just molecules in motion, yeah, there's no morality. There's no good, there's no evil. Um, here's uh, another philosopher, atheist, uh, Michael Ruse. He wrote an article in uh, The Guardian called, it's titled, God is Dead, Long Live Morality. It's kind of a fascinating article. And here's what he says. Here's just a, a snippet of it. Morality is just a matter of emotions, like liking ice cream and sex and hating toothache and marking student papers. He's a professor. He says, but it is and has to be a funny kind of emotion. It has to pretend that it is not that at all. You see, if we thought that morality was no more than liking or not liking spinach, then pretty quickly it would break down. So morality has to come across as something more than emotion. It has to appear to be objective, like out there in the world, even though it's really subjective. It's just up to the individual. It's just the subject. It's kind of like this. When you say subjective, the subject makes it true. The subject determines right and wrong. So some people like strawberry ice cream. Other people like vanilla. Some people like chocolate, okay? On this view, some people might like to murder. Some people might like to hurt people. Some people might, you know what I'm saying? Some people might like to lie or steal or cheat. It's just up to the individual. But we kind of, we have to pretend that it's not that, right? Because if we all knew what was really going on, it would really break down. That's what he's saying. But here's what the, here's the problem with this idea. Here's the problem. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like this. Imagine an atheist says, man, I can't believe in God. And you say, well, why not? And he says, well, Brussels sprouts. And you say, um, Brussels sprouts? What's wrong with Brussels sprouts? And he says, have you ever tasted those things? They're absolutely disgusting. Now, does anyone here like Brussels sprouts? Oh, wow. Now, hold on a second. Hold on a second. I'm not talking about Brussels sprouts that are like wrapped in bacon, Okay. I know that's what some of you are thinking, because you don't like, you like bacon, and the Brussels sprout is just the vehicle to get more bacon, right? How many people in here actually just like Brussels sprouts? Just Brussels, okay, still some of you, wow. Oklahoma, who would have thought? And you say, well, yes, some people like, see what I mean? Some people like them. See, this is, this is what the challenge amounts to, though. If it's just a matter of emotions, it's just a matter of personal preference. That's what Michael Roos just said. And so that's what this whole challenge amounts to. Now, it's, it, it seems like racism and murder and abuse and all those things are really objectively evil. It's not just my feelings about them. It's that they really are evil. And if they are then there must be an objective standard between good and evil to judge between good and evil. And that standard, recognized by most people, the best explanation for that standard is God. Have there been other like, attempts? Yes, philosophers can get real creative when it comes to this stuff. I'm telling you the best explanation for the moral law is the moral lawgiver, okay? Is God, who gives commands for us to follow. I'll tell you what, here's like the summary right here. C.S. Lewis, this should be like standard reading, okay? Mere Christianity, such a great book. Now Lewis, it was this kind of, this thinking, this argument that got him moving towards God and eventually becoming a Christian. Here's what he says though, because he used to be an atheist. He says, as an atheist, my argument against God was that universe seems so cruel and unjust. That's the problem of evil. As an atheist, look at the world. It's cruel and unjust. And then he says this, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? 
A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. So what was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? And he says this, of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. See, he could have, get, he could have said, there is no justice, like Richard Dawkins. There is no justice. But then you can't say, well, I won't believe in God because of all the injustice in the world. Wait, you just said there's no justice or injustice. You can't have it both ways. And here's what's really interesting. When you start reading and doing some digging on this stuff, what you find is Richard Dawkins, who says there's no justice and there's no good and no evil, has no problem in the God delusion saying the God of the Old Testament is like what he says, arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust. Wait a second. You said there's no justice. How come there's justice now? And I know why. Because he lives in the real world. And when you live in the real world and you are made by the creator to know right and wrong, read Romans 2, right? It's written on our hearts. He's gonna see, he's gonna see injustice all over the place. And so because of his worldview, he says there's no justice. But when he lives day to day, he sees it's all over the place. It's kind of like you heard the expression, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Well, this is what's going on. They want to say evil proves that God doesn't exist. Oh, but by the way, there's no objective evil. There's no objective good. It doesn't exist. Well, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Now, I want to be real clear here. I am not saying the atheist doesn't know right from wrong or good or evil, okay? It's not about knowing it. It's about grounding it. It's about like making sense of it, giving an account of it. So I fully agree that my atheist friends, they all know that it's wrong to steal, lie, and murder, and all those things. What I'm saying is they have no moral foundation to ground it, whereas the Christian who knows those things too has that foundation, and it's, it's grounded in, I think, God's nature. It's kind of like this. You can know what a book says while denying there's an author of the book, right? Like we could pull out green eggs and ham, and you could all read through it, okay? And you could know what it says while denying that there's an author, Dr. Seuss, but there would be no book to read in the first place if there was no Dr. Seuss, right? In the same way, you can know right and wrong, good and evil, right? It's written on our hearts. It has said that. You can know it while denying there's an author of morality. There's no God. But listen, there would be no morality to know in the first place if there was no author of morality. Do you get it? It's the difference between knowing it and grounding it. And so... When they say something, when someone says something, well, I know, I can read just fine. I can know morality just fine. I don't need your book. I don't need your God to know right and wrong. I say, yeah, you're right. But there would be no morality to begin with if there was no God. And so I actually think we have lots of good reasons to believe in God out there, and we could walk through so many. But I actually think that if evil really exists in the world, then that means there must be a God out there because evil means there's good, you know, good and evil, and there must be a standard outside and that standard is God. And so you can make a kind of argument like that. So evil is something. I think that kind of like philosophically, I know, again, it doesn't erase the hurt. I'm just saying, you can't just say point to evil in the world and say, see, there's no God. You can't do that. But I want to go further. I want to say evil is something real but it's not something, okay? And this is something that theologians and philosophers have talked about for centuries and wrestled with. And because there's a question out there, well, if God created all the things in the world and evil is a thing, then that means God created evil. But this like, it should strike you as not right. I mean, a perfectly good God can't create evil, okay? So what, how, do, what, how do we respond? Well, what philosophers have done is they've talked about evil being the absence of good, 
or the word they use is privation of good. Now that might be tricky to wrap your mind around, so let's talk about donuts for a second, okay? Now, here's my question to you. Have you ever eaten a donut hole? Now, before you answer that, (laughs) before you answer that, uh, I'm not talking about those round balls that we call Timbits, okay? Do you guys know Tim Hortons? for you? Okay, see, we, I, can, I can give this talk, and there's no trouble with Canadians, okay? Because we don't call them donut holes. Those balls are Timbits. Okay, this donut right here, if I gave you that donut and said, can you eat the donut hole, you would all say, no, you can't eat the donut hole, right? Why? Because the donut hole is where the donut ain't. I'm not going too quickly for, I know it's like still morning, right? We're not going too quick here. See, the donut hole isn't a thing. The donut hole only exists as long as the donut exists. No donut, no donut hole. Okay. Now think about, think about good and evil for a second, okay? I actually believe that God creates goodness. He creates good creatures, he creates even the, uh, the angels, even the now fallen angels were at one point good, okay? And when something goes wrong with the good thing, that's when the evil gets introduced, okay? It's when there is an absence of the good thing. And so I think this is actually how we even speak. I mean, when we talk about someone who's not being moral, we're saying they're immoral, right? It's the negation of the good. Um, they might, we might speak of injustice or say that's unjust when justice is not done. Someone's not being honest, we say you're being dishonest, right? It's the negation of the good thing, honesty. And you could go down the list. You see, if you know the story, God creates a good world, right? You just have to open to the first page And it's good, 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 good. And then behold, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. God made a good world. But you gotta keep reading, okay? So you get on page one, you flip it over and you get to chapter three, right? And what's the problem? Well, something happened to the world. God put Adam and Eve, two good creatures, in a good garden, and they desire the fruit, and they're commanded, you can eat of anything. I just have one rule, don't eat from that tree. Now you got a whole video on this if you want to go deeper, why do you put the tree in there, whatever. But they take from the tree. They disobey God's command, and they bring, um, and they break the world. We talked about, I think Seth said something about, um, use the word broken. We're broken people. That's how we started. We're broken people. Absolutely right. We are beautiful, we are made in God's image, but we are also broken. And Adam and Eve broke the world. And that broken world has produced all kinds of broken people and broken circumstances that we live in today. And so we call that the fall, right? So so we have this this question, and you know, Um, Stephen Fry asked the question. He said, how dare you create a world which is so full of injustice and pain, right? That was his first question. And our answer as Christians, not just vague believers in God, but Bible-believing Christians says, no, no, look here. God made a good world, not full of injustice and pain. And guess what? He says, it's not our fault. No, it's our fault. And I bet you Stephen Fry produces evil as well. You see, we're we're not just victims of evil. We produce evil too. If we, I mean, if you sit down and think about it, there are things that you've done. You've hurt people. You've lied to people. And you could go on like this. Thank God that there's forgiveness, right? We'll come back to that. Something good made evil possible. So we said evil is something. It's real in the world. But it's not a thing that God made. It's like, here's all the good stuff and here's a bunch of evil stuff. All right, duke it out. That's not not our worldview, okay? 
It's not a thing. Something good made evil possible. Now that something good is, um, I think, moral freedom. Um, God did not create robots. He could have. He could have just programmed us to just, just like you might program, you know, a, 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 a robot of some kind or a video game or whatever. God didn't build the world like that. He made a world with creatures who have the ability to make choices. And those choices, I think, create this rich relationship that we have the privilege of being a part of with each other, with creation, and with our God. Um, I mean, you know the difference between, like, I'm going to fly home tomorrow morning, okay? Now I have three girls, um, 12, 10, and 7, okay? So you got to pray for me. I'm outnumbered. And we even got, over the pandemic, did anyone else buy a dog over the pandemic, okay? When they were like crazy expensive, it was like, what is going on here? Well, we got a hamster that was like 10 bucks, and I thought I'd get two years out of this guy, okay? That's what it said, online, life expectancy, two years. I got 10 months, okay? They, it died while my kids were playing with it, okay? Teddy, I'm in, I'm in a Zoom meeting, okay? And my girls are like, Teddy's not moving. I'm thinking, that's not good. Um, so we did, a whole, we did a whole thing for Teddy. But I had promised my girls, because I'm like such a softy, and they're like, they were like just a wreck. I'm like, okay, um, I'm going to get you a dog. Right? I'm going to make up for this. And uh, so we bought a Morky Poo. A Morky Poo is basically a hamster, okay? It is a Yorkie Maltese Poodle. It's nine pounds, fully grown. This thing looks like a stuffed animal. Um, it's adorable, but um, easily like, I mean, this thing would not survive in the wild. Um, now, I don't know why I'm talking about my Morky Poo right now. Okay, so all right, I'm gonna get home. I got three girls. My middle daughter, Jocelyn, is the most affectionate. Like, she will cling to me like a barnacle, okay, when I'm home. Like, she just loves kisses and hugs and, like, just one more kiss before bed, you know, and then one more, one more hug and this kind of thing. And I know when I get home, I do not need to, like, um, like get over here and tell me you love me. No, I'm going to walk in the door, Daddy's home! And then, I love you, I love you, I love you, that kind of thing. Now, that is different then say, let me see if I can do this. Actually, if I turn my phone off of airplane or off do not disturb, you guys might be able to hear this right now. Let's see if this works. Okay, here we go. Siri, who am I? You're Tim, but since we're friends, I get to call you the love of my life. Did you hear that? <laughs> Some of you are like, I'm out of here. So Siri calls me the love of her life. And you can program Siri to do that too. <laughs> now, I only do it for the illustration, all right? This is not like I... I know it's really weird. T TMI, right? Too much... Whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, no judgment here. Now, that's weird, right? But you can see, like, I programmed Siri to call me the love of her life. Got Jocelyn, Siri... Those are two different things, right? The reason, it's, the reason it's like, ah, sweet when it comes to Jocelyn is because I didn't program her to do it. She just, she does that out of her own free will. When, when we look at like the Siri thing, you're just like, that's weird, right? That's not right. Well, uh, this moral, this, this I think helps answer part of the, part of the challenge here. Um, I used to be a full-time teacher. This is a true story. I was at a, a school, um, and I was actually doing, um, we call them on-call periods in, uh, in Canada, where it's not really my class, but I have this period off, so I'm going to cover for another teacher. So I go in. It's a grade uh, 12 class, a senior class. It's a math class. Kids are funneling, and I'm at the desk. One of the kids sees me, big football guy. You know, he's one of these kind of kids that... Uh, he, you know, never had any papers with him, you know, that kind of thing. Um, didn't do his homework. Saw him, he starts turning around. He's going to leave. I said, get back in here. Get back in here. Now, I noticed he had a paper clip in his hand, 
okay? And uh, he goes and sits down immediately. Can I use the restroom? And we call them the washroom. Do you guys call them washrooms? Do you call them bathrooms? Okay. He's like, can I use the washroom? Because that's, that's what we say. And I'm like, uh, no, because I know if he leaves, he's never coming back. Put his hand up again. Can I use the washroom? No, you're not using Okay. He keep, okay, finally, I got this idea. I said, look it. If you can bend that paper clip into three figures, three shapes, I'll let you go. And he's like, done. Okay, he's in. Okay. So I said, okay, first, can you bend it into a square? No problem. Like in 20 seconds, he had it into a square. All right. It already had like the corners in it. Perfect. Okay. Now the class is watching. I said, okay, now can you bend into a circle? Now this took a bit more time. Get all the corners off, bend into a circle. Okay, two down, one more to go. And I said, can you now bend it into a square circle? And he said, do you mean a half square, half circle? I said, no, no, I want you to bend it into a square circle. And he said, um, that's impossible. And I said to him, are you telling me with those big, strong muscles that you can't bend that puny paperclip into a square circle? What's the problem? And he knew, and the class knew, that the problem is that power has nothing to do with it. You, power can't do the logically impossible, right? It can't build a square circle or a married bachelor or whatever. You know, those things are, are incoherent ideas. They're contradictory. And I actually think that there may be something to this. This is often called the free will defense, okay, in philosophy. And the idea is if God is all-powerful, yet he is committed to creating free creatures who have a certain kind of freedom, then this particular premise, if God is all-powerful, he could eliminate, maybe he can't without destroying those creatures and their freedom. You get what I'm saying? So free will answers kind of part of the argument against God here. And we could go, you know, much more detail on that. But I want to jump to this one. If God is all good, he would want to eliminate all the evil in the world. Is that true? Is that true? Well, I actually think that um, this isn't true, and you know it from experience. There are some instances where we allow pain and suffering to happen. We permit it for some other good, okay? Some greater good, maybe. Um, for example, you know, going to get like your tetanus shot or whatever. When your kids are like two and all they see is a needle, they're thinking, what, what are you going to do with that? You know? I mean, have you ever, maybe the parents in the room have, where you had to actually hold your kid down as they got a needle or something like that? You know that that is a painful experience for them. And they can't even comprehend why you're doing this. You're not doing it because you like to put them through pain. You're doing it because you're trying to help them. Okay, you're doing it for some greater good. And, and you can think of other examples like this, where we allow a certain um, amount of, of suffering even um, for, some, for some greater good. Or we can even use that suffering for some greater good. Think about this. If you read Genesis, um, you'll come to the story of Joseph. And Joseph, if you know the story, he gets sold into slavery by his brothers. And then he ends up uh, working his way up into Potiphar's house. And then he gets falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. Like he's doing the right thing. And he gets thrown back in prison. And then, but you know, when, he's, when Joseph there meets his brothers at the very end of the story, spoiler alert, okay? Genesis 50, verse 20, he says to his brothers, you meant evil against me. Yeah, they did. They sold him into slavery. But God meant it for good. What good? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God used the evil of the brothers to save thousands of people, maybe millions of people through a famine. God can use suffering. Now, I want to be careful here because I, I mean, we often don't know. We can't look at someone's life and say, wow, you're going through that suffering. Here's why. No, 
But just because we don't know why doesn't mean God doesn't know why, right? We're talking about the all-knowing, all-wise God. Or how about in the New Testament? You have this man who is blind from birth, blind from birth. And the, and the disciples ask, why, was he, why is he blind? Who sinned? Right? They want to say, someone's got to have sinned here. Maybe he sinned, but he was born blind. So couldn't, Maybe his parents sinned. Jesus is like, no, no, no. It's not that he sinned or his parents sinned. It was that, it was that the, the works of God might be displayed in him. What works of God? So that God could, Jesus could heal him, and we read about this story. Like, people have been reading about this blind man's healing for the last 2,000 years. That's a lot of good. That's a lot of good. Somebody might have read that story and was like, I'm ready to become a believer. You know what I'm saying? Like, there is, we don't even know the kinds of good that resulted from this. Now, we, from our finite perspective, say, no, 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 Tim, you don't understand. Born blind. Imagine being blind in the first century. That would have been a hard life, a very difficult life. And if that's all we get, yeah, this guy, man, that was, that was, that's rough. But I want you to have an eternal perspective. It's, it's interesting how those sufferings that may have lasted years and years and years disappear when it comes to an eternal perspective. Think about, think about Paul. Paul endured all kinds of hardships. He actually records those in 2 Corinthians. He says, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, hunger, thirst, often without food, cold and exposure. That's what he says. And he calls that a light momentary affliction. How could he do that? Is he delusional? No. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. This Paul is not thinking about his present circumstances. He is thinking about eternity. And I want to challenge you guys. Don't judge God by isolated events. Paul didn't. He didn't get beaten and say, oh, there's no God. No. It's preparing for me eternal weight of glory. You need to know your story is not done. Your story is not done. And, and the, the story of the world isn't done. I was reading to my girls, and, uh, and we got to Snow White, and she's like, sleep, bit the apple, whatever. And all of a sudden, the girl's like, let's stop reading, stop reading. Like, my girls get so, they're sensitive when it comes to movies and books and stuff. Like, they'll be like, you know, cartoons, and they're like, turn it off, you know, this kind of thing. But I'm like, no, we got to keep reading till the end. There's a happily ever after. There's a happily ever after. There's lots, of, there's lots of reasons why God might permit suffering. One of the most, I think, uh, compelling is that when people asked about this tower that fell on 18 people and killed them, Jesus said, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. There's something about suffering and evil that causes us to turn our eyes to the creator of the universe. C.S. Lewis said, we can ignore our pleasure. We do. We don't, we, you can stop thinking about God when, the good, when you're having the good times. Money in the bank, sitting on the beach, whatever. He says, but pain insists on being attended to. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, and shouts at our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I think God's using suffering to get people's attention. Some of you might be thinking, well, doesn't the Bible say you shall be happy for I am happy? No, it's not in there. Not in second, that's in second opinions. You shall be holy for I am holy. And to get us to holiness may require some suffering. So if God is all good, he would want to eliminate all evil in the world? Not necessarily, okay? If he gave you everything you ever wanted, if I gave my kids everything they ever wanted, they would be spoiled. Their character would be spoiled. Last thing, this will be short. Evil is solved by someone. 
Why doesn't God solve the problem of evil right now? Like at, you know, 1022. Why not? I'll tell you why. Because where would any of us be at 1023? Right? Because we, we don't just suffer evil, we're part of the problem. In fact, uh, G.K. Chesterton, he, the, the newspaper put out an, a question, what's wrong with the world? And everybody was writing op-eds and he just wrote, dear sirs, I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. And you are. We are part of the problem of evil. But I actually think the answer to the problem is God. Specifically, it's God in Christ on a cross at Calvary. When you ask where is God, think of the cross. He was right in the thick of it. He did not remain distant and uh, detached from suffering, but actually came and suffered with us. It says the word uh, became flesh and dwelt among us. He came on a rescue mission to seek and to save evil, wicked men and women. That includes you and me. So that we would not receive justice, but would receive mercy. That's what we want. We want forgiveness, not condemnation. God is slow. It, is, uh, it says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some counsel us, but is patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's why God hasn't ended the suffering today, because there are still people ready to come into the kingdom, and maybe that's you, right? Let me close with this verse. Um, some people think that if you get rid of God, then you get rid of the problem. That's not true. You're still left with suffering. You're still left with evil. You've just eliminated hope. That's what happens when you get rid of God. Listen to the Lamentations. Lamentations is a book that is really depressing. It is, it is called Lamentations for a reason. Jeremiah is lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem and Judea and everything's going wrong. And he basically says, there's no hope. You read, I think it's verse 21, which is not on the screen. He says, it's hopeless. And then he says these words. And if you are experiencing suffering today, I want you to memorize these words. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. In the midst of all your suffering, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in God. I will hope in him. So if you're experiencing suffering, I want you, don't reject God. Don't hate God. Hope in God. Turn to him. He's the comforter. He's the one that can show you mercy. He's the one that can restore your soul.